How far off are we from a completely automated digital advisor? One firm ran a successful April Fool recently, claiming to have invented and installed such a robot. However, is such a device likely to materialise soon? My guest today makes predictions about this and other developments based upon work he and colleagues from RGA are carrying out in their think tank hidden in the depths of suburban Surrey. Hear how Jonathan thinks that an automated digital advisor is possible, but would have to be able to persuade as well as analyse facts. Listen to his thoughts on whether an automated digital advisor, working alongside its human counterpart, could ultimately stimulate growth not only in the protection market, but in all financial services sectors. That's all right here in episode 41 of the Marketing, Protection and Finance podcast. Welcome. You're listening to the podcast for providers and advisors looking to share business ideas and inspiration in the world of protection and finance. For each episode, you can find the show notes and links to things we talked about at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MPAF. So let's get on with the show and here's your host, Roger Edwards. And I'm delighted to introduce you to my guest today and he is Jonathan Hughes. Jonathan qualified as an actuary in 2006 and is head of strategic development at reinsurer RGA in London. However, he is currently exiled in a small office out in Surrey with Richard Verdin and a few others working on ways to reverse the decline in the protection sales that we've seen over the past five years. A little known fact about Jonathan is that he once had his bag searched at Glasgow Airport whilst carrying a list of different types of bomb and potential targets in London. So, Jonathan, welcome to the Empath Podcast. Thank you very much, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Jonathan, we're going to have to explore this experience that you had at Glasgow Airport a little bit more. What on earth were you doing with details of bombs in your bag? Yes, it, it sounds worse than it actually was, I have to say. It, it, it's one of those things that you, you look back and see each individual step in your decision-making as being perfectly reasonable. And then you look at the outcome and go, that was a bit of a silly thing to do, really. Um, so just to give you a bit of background, we were looking at our group life portfolio at the time. And one of the key risks, of course, that you have with group life is you have a lot of people working very closely together in one location. So terrorist attacks can have a big impact on that sort of portfolio. So we were trying to quantify that risk and understand what sort of capital we should hold for it. So quite naturally, we were looking at where our risk was located around the city of London. And we'd worked with a consultancy who had provided us with a list of the sorts of targets that terrorists might attack. So I had the addresses of embassies, government buildings, underground stations, even strip clubs and casinos actually were on that list. Oh, right. <laughs> and alongside that list was uh, basically uh, different types of terrorist attack that these guys could conceive would happen and what that might mean for casualties. So if a one-ton bomb went off, this is what might happen. A 10-ton bomb, an anthrax release, all these sorts of good things. And while I was traveling up to see a client in Scotland, I thought, well, yeah, this is a useful way for me to spend my time. I've got this on my to-do list. And I got to the security line and I think just randomly got picked to have my bag searched. And I didn't really think anything of that. But after they'd done the swab of the laptop, the chap said, well, can you just lift the lid on that laptop so I can see it power up and check that it works? And it was only at that moment that the penny dropped that if this guy actually looks at what's about to appear on the screen, 
then I'm going to have a very long and uncomfortable conversation with him. Uh, fortunately, of course, he's in automatic mode. He's already decided I'm not a terrorist. He doesn't even notice really what's on the screen uh, and just waves me through afterwards. But I have to say, I did think after the event that maybe I should have thought a little bit more broadly about what I was reading on that plane. Yeah, I think my heart might have sank when I realised the potential problems I might have been in. You know, you always hear these stories of being taken into the back room and strip searched and all sorts of other horrible things. Yeah, I think, trust me, I'm an actor. He would probably not get you air very far. So, Jonathan, today we're going to talk about this fascinating, uh, what do you call it, think tank that you're running out in Surrey with Richard Verdin and the team. But before we get to that, let's find out a little bit about yourself. So tell us where you came from, what your career ambitions are, and basically, Jonathan, what makes you tick? So I guess I'll start from the beginning then, Roger. I I went to school in Berkshire, went to the local comprehensive there. Uh, and then went on to the University of Nottingham, where I studied economics with French. I spent a year out in Toulouse, down in the south of France, which is a fantastic city to study in, particularly if you're into your rugby. And the reason why I chose economics was fundamentally because I knew nothing about it. I didn't have a clue how interest rates affected economies. I didn't know about the monetary policy trilemma and all sorts of other interesting stuff. So I wanted to study it to find out more. And after I graduated, I took a similar decision, really, to go into an actuarial career, because at that point, I didn't really know what actuaries were and what their work involved, and it seemed like something that I would really like to learn about. So I started my first proper job as a pensions consultant for Mercer. So we were valuing pension liabilities of schemes and individuals and such like. I had a great time there, worked with some wonderful people. But after maybe two years there, I figured that there were probably enough pensions actuaries already to see through the defined benefit schemes that were busy closing at the time. So I switched across to the rather esoteric world of of life reinsurance. Uh, I went to work for Munich Re in their life branch in London. And during my time there, qualified as an actuary. I held all sorts of different roles in those eight years, Um, a lot of them with some sort of pricing flavour to them, reinsurance proposition development, uh, and also leading a a multidisciplinary team of research actuaries, development underwriters, and data analysts. Uh, While I was at Munich, I started volunteering my time for the various industry bodies that are out there, and I continue to do that today. Uh, So currently, I serve on committees for the ABI, for the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries and the Continuous Mortality Investigation. Uh, A couple of years ago now, uh, I guess it would be mid-2013, I moved to RGA, another reinsurer in London, and took up my current role as Head of Strategic Development there. And from a personal perspective, I think for life insurers and reinsurers at the moment, these really do feel like quite exciting times. I, I know we've seen the market for protection shrink over the past five years, But I feel, for the first time in my career in protection at least, that really all the stars are aligned for some sort of step change in this industry. You look at the pace of technological change today, and it's just so quick. We we can imagine doing things now that were barely conceivable only a few years ago. And if you combine that with the sorts of regulatory pressure that providers and distributors are under, and the changing market dynamics between the uh, big incumbent players at the moment, you can just see all sorts of stimulus and impetus to go out and find sustainable new lines of business. And I think that's a really exciting time, and I'm looking forward to being part of that positive change. And the best thing 
thing, in my view, about the protection industry is that it's the sort of industry where you don't actually need that many individuals to make a substantial difference to it. Uh, I think you can look back over the past decade and, and see individuals or groups of individuals and businesses who have had large positive impacts on it. So in order to help make that sort of positive change happen, I've spent the past year or so, I think, working closely in this small team with Richard Verdin and a few others indeed on market growth initiatives. And probably the first big step we took was May last year, where we decided to remove ourselves from the main RGA London office and go out and rent a little office out down in Surrey. And we took with us really nothing more than just our laptops, our phones, surrounded ourselves with flip charts and post-it notes, uh, and cracked on with investigating our different ideas for how to grow this market. Now, I personally found that a fantastic experience. I, I was very sceptical when we first went out there that the change in location would have a material impact, but I've been amazed at how quickly, in that sort of intense, sparse environment, you can create and develop ideas and bring them to some sort of fruition. And indeed, during that time, I think we've come up with, depending how you count them, seven or eight different concepts where we feel there's a real chance that they could create the sort of step change in market growth that we're all looking for. I quite like the idea of getting away from the the big corporate office and, and going into that sort of um, incubating environment. It reminds me very much of the very early days of Bright Grey when there were six of us and six mobile phones and one room and that was it. How, what was it like being away from corporate bureaucracy and Presumably, because you're not actually in the main office, you weren't getting in, involved in day-to-day -day meetings and this, that, and the other. I'm sure you were still on going to meetings over the phone or Skype or whatever, but it must have been quite liberating, Jonathan. Yeah, it, it was It was liberating in numerous ways. So you, you free up a lot of your time because you don't get sucked into conversations about, I don't know, business continuity or HR policy or you know, all these other things that are useful and important to a corporate entity, but ultimately take you away and break your train of thought if you're trying to develop something quickly. And it also, just literally the change of environment to have white walls all around you with with nothing to distract you other than the ideas that you're developing together was, was hugely powerful. And I think if you want this to work and to work properly, it's really important to get the right team dynamic in that small group of people in that room. Right. You, you need to have the appropriate balance of personality types, of scepticism versus optimism, people who are quite operationally focused versus the big picture thinkers and such like. And if you can get that team working well, then it's incredible how much progress you can make. The, the, the test I have at that is that some people in our team were coming in maybe once or twice a week um, because we couldn't secure them full time initially. And they would come in in the second week and see what we were doing and say, hang on, this, this is all new. Where did this come from? We say, no, 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 it's, it's entirely based on what we were doing with you last week. But look, here's where we've taken it. This is the route we've gone through. And it was only as we explained that that you realised how much progress you could make in just three or four days. That's really interesting. And you've said you've come up with seven or eight concepts. Are any of these concepts going to be a, like a proverbial magic bullet for the protection market? So, no, absolutely none of them will be magic bullets. Um, I don't know whether you or your listeners are familiar with the concept of a wicked versus a tame problem, but the issue of market growth in protection is very much a wicked problem. It's something where there isn't a defined, clear solution that locking a bunch of clever people in a room will come up with and solve. 
what it needs is a sequence of clumsy solutions that might take you in the right direction and that you can then build on uh, and iterate from there. But that said, I do think that all or any of our concepts could have a role to play if we're going to leave some sort of successful legacy for those who follow us into this industry. And I'd really like to talk about one of those concepts with you and your listeners today. And that concept that we're going to focus on, Jonathan, is something that you're calling the digital advisor. Is that right? Yes, that's right. That's that's our sort of term that we're using to describe a, um, a, a machine that will help advisors and, and others sell more protection business. So take us take us through the concept of the the digital advisor machine. So uh, I mean we're all aware of, of the background to our market that new business sales have been declining. Um, none of that would matter if people had no need for our products. But the sad thing is there are plenty of people out there whose families would struggle financially if they were to die or get seriously ill. So you know, this is a problem worth solving. We, we ought to try to fix it rather than go and sell fish or do something else more interesting. And of course, it begs the question, why has the market fallen? Now, there are all sorts of reasons for this, many of them you've discussed in your previous podcasts. But one key observation that I'd like to pull out today is, of course, the fact that that decline in sales has gone hand in hand with a decline in advisor numbers. Now, non-advice sales certainly have a role to play in their market, but I think your listeners would agree that having an advisor is one of the most powerful ways to create both the confidence and the momentum needed to turn those unmet, unconscious needs into demand for protection products. So our hypothesis is pretty simple. It's that more advice will lead to more sales. And of course, that begs the question, how do you make more advice? Now, I think you actually, Roger, mentioned in a previous podcast the LinkedIn blog that my colleague Richard Verdon had uh, had posted. That's right, yes. Where he was talking about increasing selling hours. That's right. And he also wrote in Money Marketing on the same subject, I think. Yes, that, that's right. And we can dig into that a little bit further today because uh, this concept of increasing selling hours, that there's actually three levers that you can pull here. Uh, two of them are, are purely related to increasing the number of those hours and one to how powerful those hours are. So if we take each of them in turn, uh, one way to increase selling hours is of course to increase the number of protection advisors. If you have more people advising on protection, you'll increase the number of selling hours in the market. It's pretty obvious. The second lever is to do with focus. So where advisors have a choice about the sorts of products they sell, how do you make them more focused on protection? If you take a mortgage broker as an example, they can choose to sell a mortgage to another customer or to sell a protection policy to the person in front of them there. So if we can increase their focus on protection, then of course we increase the number of selling hours there. And the third lever we can pull is more related to the efficiency of those hours. So if you increase the number of customers that an advisor can serve per hour, then obviously that leads to more advice and therefore more sales. Now that's all pretty straightforward and banal to be honest, but fortunately we think we found a tool that will help all three of those levers and that's what we're calling this digital advisor and and where was that uh, light bulb moment were you in your little room in surrey with um, in amongst all your post-it notes and um, pictures on the walls when that light bulb went off and the digital advisor idea just came to you well do, do you know I, I don't think it really quite worked like that it's, it's been a bit of a, um, a convoluted journey okay I, I, might, I might take you through the story of that yeah, of course. Um, I, th I think I'd probably pinpoint the start of this as the run-up to our client conference in September. So you know, we invite the great and the good from the protection industry to join us for an afternoon. Uh, we have a keynote speaker. We do workshops ourselves. 
And for our conference last year, we had a thing called Rise of the Machines. Sounds a bit terminator to me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, we had to get the branding right to make sure it didn't sound quite so threatening. But, um, but basically, what we wanted to do with that theme was to consider the use of technology in our industry and to consider that over a longer time horizon than our day jobs might typically allow. And we had for our keynote speaker a very interesting chap called Dr. Carl Frey, who came from the University of Oxford. And he had authored, or was one of the authors, of a paper entitled The Future of Employment, How Susceptible Are Our Jobs to Automation? Now, some of you listeners may have heard of this paper, or at least its conclusions, because there were quite a few articles in the press written about it after its release. Right. In particular, it had a headline claim that nearly half of US jobs were at high risk of automation over the coming decade or two. And buried in an appendix in that paper, uh, you can see a list of about 700 jobs that includes underwriters, insurance salesmen, and indeed actuaries. And to be honest, if you look at that and their chances of automation, it, it doesn't really make for very pretty reading, I have to say. <laughs> so at this conference, uh, Richard and I, we were down to run a workshop on distribution. And so we took our cue from this theme of Rise of the Machines to think a bit more broadly about how we could use technology in distribution. And because the conference was looking several years ahead into the future, we had more license than we normally would to think longer term. Uh, certainly longer term than you normally do when thinking about distribution issues. And I have to say, I found that freedom a, a really refreshing change. And rather than simply lecture our audience for an hour, which would bore them and us, frankly, we took a little bit of a different route. We presented them with a story and posed questions to them as we went through that story to get their views back via um, a voting mechanism. Now, the session took maybe 50 minutes, but I think I can summarise the, the story pretty quickly for you today. And in a nutshell, it went something like this, that we've seen a fall in advisor numbers and a fall in protection sales at the same time. We think that that's more than mere coincidence. The advice process itself is persuasive, and that persuasion is one of the key elements needed to stimulate action and hence create sales where there's an unmet need. Now we believe that the advice process could be more automated, but the question is, can that automation be made persuasive? That sounds fascinating, sales? fascinating. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it was a, a really good, engaging story to have with, I think there were about 80 people in the room. And we held votes on all the different steps as we went through. So do you believe that advice leads to market growth? Do you believe it can be automated? Do you believe it can be persuasive? And as it turned out, actually, a large majority of the people in that room, by the end of the story, they felt that automated advice process would be as or more effective than human ones within the next five years or even sooner. Now. Of course, we're not talking about armies of Terminator-style robots stalking the streets trying to sell you protection products. Somehow that actually sounds more scary than the films themselves. <laughs> yes. What we're really talking about it isn't replacement or automation per se, but it is more augmentation of human capabilities. So the idea is to have a multifaceted machine that can take a customer through different parts of the device process, whether that's establishing their needs or their demands, and doing so in a defined, consistent, robust fashion. And that sort of machine could be used to make existing advisors more efficient or as a safe referral tool for advisors who currently perhaps don't like the 
risk of passing their customers on to the human third party. And if you think back to those three elements that we talked about a little earlier of increasing selling hours in the market, if we got this machine right, you can see how it would lead to new advisors selling protection because they could use a machine to perform tasks they currently can't or won't do themselves. You can also see how it increases the ease and robustness of the advice process to make it a more attractive proposition relative to other products that an advisor might be um, trying to sell and hence increase their focus on protection. And finally, of course, you can see how it would help an advisor serve more customers per hour by doing a lot of the lead work electronically. So I think if you get this right, it can be great benefit to all three elements of the problem of selling hours in the market. And that's one of the routes to growing it. So we're not, just to be clear, we're not talking about a machine that sits in a virtual bubble, totally replacing the financial advisor. This is purely something that augments the IFA's ability to see more people and talk to more people about protection, in addition to the advice they're giving people on investments, pensions and whatever else. Yes, that's certainly how I see it. And I guess the analogy I draw is that um, if you have games like chess, for example, you can pitch teams of humans against teams of machines. Uh, I think a machine first beat a grandmaster back in something like 1997. But as you get more complex, uncertain, ambiguous games that involve an element of human interaction, what you find is that actually teams that combine humans and machines outperform a team solely of machines and indeed a team solely of humans as well. So if you can get that combination right, then that should be more powerful than just one or the other individually. Okay, so we've got the concept of the digital advisor, the augmented digital advisor. What what challenges have you faced getting this initiative off the ground as you've been working in your um, incubating laboratory? Well, well, I guess the way I would try to tackle that issue of what the challenges are is to think about the advice process okay. and, and what it actually is trying to produce. And you can break it down in all sorts of different ways. And, and there are probably people much better qualified than I am to do some sort of forensic analysis of it. But personally, I, I like to live in as simple a mental world as I can get away with, uh, if only to give me the illusion that I understand it. And in the simplest terms, I would split the advice process into two key outcomes. The first is what people typically focus on. So this is the objective, rational, numerical provision of sound recommendations on what cover is required for an individual. Now, if you want to automate that, you really need to make as many rules as you can to allow for each individual's unique circumstances. Yeah. And that's an awful lot of work. Um, so you know, where do you stop? At what point do you say enough is enough? And related to that, you also need to be confident that the machine knows when to say, I'm out of my depth here. In the same way that a human advisor would know if an individual is presenting with such unique circumstances that it's outside their realm of expertise, you need the machine to be able to notice that and hence refer them off to a skilled human. And a, a final challenge in this first objective part is, of course, just the intrinsic risk of systematic errors that come with any automated process. So tackling all those different aspects really just requires long, detailed work, mapping out decision trees and engaging with compliance experts. And that's work we're only really just starting now, to be fair. But I think there's a second objective of advice, which personally I feel is a greater challenge than the first. And this second aspect relates to human nature. Now, as, as the saying goes, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And in similar fashion, you can give a customer the best possible advice but how do you get them to have the confidence and impetus that makes them act on those rational recommendations? And it's this part that I think is much harder to automate. 
we're we're all prone to procrastination and delay. Uh, I can think of examples from my own life. I I actually paid somebody to prepare my will for me simply because I knew that if I paid someone, they would chase me in order to get it completed. And indeed, that did happen right up to the point where they gave me the will and said, "All you need to do is get this signed and witnessed." Right. Guess what happened since? That you haven't had it signed and witnessed. Absolutely. Three, four <laughs> years, it sat in my drawer, unsigned, simply for want of a signature, because that's the point where the guy, he'd had his money, he moved on, he was no longer chasing me. And, you know, I like to think I'm rational and intelligent and all the rest of it. That's a really stupid thing to do. So the key question here is, can we get these machines to be persuasive? Can we get them to help people make actions on the recommendations that it gives them? Now, Ultimately, the answer to that question is going to be very context-specific, and the only way we'll find out is by trying it in our industry. Right. But there are things out there that give me some hope we can do this. Uh, one example I'd like to talk through is uh, something called Ellie. Now, Ellie was created by the Institute for Creative Technologies in Los Angeles, and in a nutshell, she's a digital shrink. Right. So she interviews you a bit like you are to me today, Roger. Yeah. Um, but she asks some rather more personal questions about your family situation, your mental health and such like. And she asks relevant follow-up questions in response to your answers. Now, Ellie's creators, they wanted to test how persuasive she was in eliciting information during that interview. So what they did is they set up a, a rather simple experiment. They got 200 people, a little more than 200 people, to go through the same interview with her. So exactly the same process in front of a computer screen with Ellie talking to. But they told half of those people that actually Ellie was in a human, that there was someone behind the scenes typing in all the questions. Right. Now, while those 200 people were giving their answers, they were observed for stress levels, how honest they were being in their disclosures and such like. Now, the interesting thing here was that the people who thought Ellie was a computer were much less stressed, more open, and more honest than those who thought that she was controlled by a little person. So when people knew that Ellie was a machine, they were more persuaded to reveal information to her. Now, this experiment, it was actually done with the intention of helping soldiers suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Understandably, soldiers are often reluctant to discuss the mental strain they've experienced on the battlefield. And post-traumatic stress disorder is a long, long way from protection advice, I understand that. But the point I'm trying to illustrate is this, that the pace of technological change now is just so great that in my mind, it's more a question of when we can make persuasive machines rather than if. And that gives me hope that we can build a viable digital advisor to grow our market. This is a really fascinating uh, concept, Jonathan. I'd never really thought about the, the differentiation between the hard facts of advice and the persuasive nature, even though we're surrounded by, I suppose, persuasive adverts and persuasive communications at all times. But they tend to be quite static, whereas what you're talking about is an interactive persuasive machine and I think that's a whole different concept and I hadn't really got my head around that so obviously this is great big challenge you're only at the start of, of overcoming this challenge what would you say was the one big idea that you'd like people listening to the empath podcast today to take away from the experiences you've had so far well I, I think you've highlighted one of the, the big ideas I, I would mention which is the importance of persuasion in that process to right. get people to act on recommendations but I mean fundamentally your listeners will make their own minds up about how viable a digital advisor is and how they could use one in their business so perhaps a, a broader idea to highlight 
is the fact that there are times when it really pays to follow your nose. We we started this journey with an academic paper that was all about job automation in the US. Yeah. But that, that paper got us thinking about how to use machines in distribution, which then led us on to digital advice. And now all of a sudden we're talking to trendy people out in Shoreditch about how you hold engaging digital conversations. And that's just a million miles away from where we started. And that happened because we gave ourselves the time and the space to go where our instincts took us. And I think if, if we get this right, it's going to be really rewarding for our clients and indeed the industry as a whole. I know it's early days yet, Jonathan, and you've really only just started on this journey. But what results have you achieved so far? Well, as you say, it is early stays and we're still prototyping. So we're, we're mocking up decision trees, getting them developed to make them more tangible for our compliance experts to interrogate. I think the, the most interesting aspect we've found so far is talking to some of the folk around Silicon Roundabout about the engagement aspects and how you get people to enjoy a digital conversation as opposed to see it purely as a chore. And I think if you can make this process fun, rewarding, engaging, then it just makes it that bit more powerful and that bit more likely to succeed. And incidentally, I don't think that applies just to digital advice. I think you can take the same mentality to underwriting processes or indeed any other customer interaction. I do find this an incredibly uh, fascinating concept, and I wish you so much luck in developing this persuasive digital machine. What's the what's the most important thing you've learnt since you effectively took yourself out of big corporate and put yourself into this stimulating environment? Well, I, I think it's this... Um, methodology of thinking more broadly about what it is we offer customers. So too often we see automation and the use of technology as a way to replace an existing process, an existing manual process with a new automated process. But if you focus too much on that simple substitution, then I think you miss the opportunity to completely reinvent the experience and indeed the purpose of those processes. Uh, And it's that sort of reinvention that I think we need if we're to genuinely grow this market. I think that's a really good point because, again, I think we've made a mistake as an industry in the past when we've tried to embrace digital technology. We've effectively taken paper processes, which have been quite clunky, and effectively just created a digital version of that clunky paper process. And in reality, even though it's digital, it's still clunky. And I think that it's very important that we try to use the means that we have to, as you say, completely reinvent that process. It it really is fascinating. Jonathan, thank you so much for giving us a, a real teasing taster of what you and Richard and RGA are up to in your uh, laboratory in Surrey. Um, I'm sure we're going to hear quite a lot about uh, about what uh, what's on the cards and what's coming up over the coming months and years. Before we go, Jonathan, I always like to finish the Empath podcast with a quick fire round of business questions. Can you stay for a couple more minutes just to do that? Absolutely, Roger. More than happy to. If there was one thing that you could change about the financial services industry, you know, you might wave the proverbial magic wand, what would it be? Well, do you know, I think if I had that magic wand, I would want to create a culture and an environment where the decisions we make are based on experiments and based on fact. And forgive me if I just tell a little anecdote to explore that a bit further. Please do. Um, a couple of years ago, actually it was at another client conference that we ran, we had uh, Bruce Daisley, the MD of Twitter in the UK, uh, presenting to us. And he's also ex-Google, as it happens. And in his presentation, one of the things he mentioned really struck with, stuck with me. And it was the fact that in those sorts of companies, 
the decisions they make are based on data. Right. And the first question they ask themselves if they don't have data is what's the strategy to create it? So if we take that into our world, rather than sitting here and debating, is it five underwriting questions or 10 underwriting questions, or is it this product literature or is it that product literature? You would run both of them in parallel and see which one had the best customer outcome. Now, I know this is really difficult to do in long-term regulated products. As soon as you talk to insurers about it, then they can just see the system's implications of running two parallel processes at the same time. I think I people that. are sinking their head into their hands at this moment. <laughs> it's hard enough to run one process, let alone two, and you know, particularly if it's proper. You know, if your date of birth is an odd number, you go down this one, and if it's even, you go down the other. Yeah. But if you can imagine the sort of data you get out of that, it, it really speeds up your learning process. And the important thing for me is that whatever you're doing that's real is an experiment. Whether you're controlling it or not, whether you're randomizing it or not, it is an experiment. And isn't it better to have a controlled one rather than an uncontrolled one where you don't learn as quickly? And to be honest, I'm not sure we even need a magic wand to make this change. I think a change in mindset would go quite a long way. This is a, an important tool that we could be deploying more in our industry. What's the one business model or a product or a campaign that's caught your attention in the last year? Tell us what it was and what you liked about it. Well, it's, it, to be honest, it's a little thing that, that springs to my mind, but I think it's uh, indicative of a, a bigger idea. And I, I know Beacon Street's marketing can perhaps be a, a little bit Marmite. Some people really like it, some people don't. But the thing that caught my eye was the way that they had incorporated their policy documents into artwork. Yeah. And, okay, yes, that solves a, a practical issue. Where is my policy? It's there over the mantelpiece file. But what I, the bigger idea that I took away from that was the fact that there's a physical reminder for their customers of what's ultimately a, a, quite an abstract, intangible purchase. Yeah. And I know my colleague at RJ, Mick James, has been talking for quite some time now about the potential value of physical totems, as he calls them. And I, I was just really pleased to see someone out in the market experimenting with, with that. And I, I really like the idea of our industry thinking a bit more broadly about what it is we give to our customers rather than just... Uh, an abstract policy. Tell us about an app or a gadget that's made a huge difference to your life and or your business. Uh, well, this is a bit unusual for me because for once I'm, a, I'm an early adopter of a technology and normally I'm one of these people who waits for others to get through all the teething problems but um, about a year ago I needed a new watch so I got myself a Samsung Gear Fit and it's part fitness tracker part smartwatch and when I got it, I was a bit skeptical. You know, why do I need to see text messages on my wrist? I've got a phone in my pocket. But having had it, I really wouldn't be without it. Just the convenience of seeing who's calling or who's texting you without having to get your phone out of your pocket is something I really wouldn't be without. And I, I would really hope that Apple's Apple Watch will crack this market because a lot of people will benefit from it. And finally, Jonathan, what's the best business book you've ever read? Tell us why you like it so much and what you took from it. Well, uh, to be honest, there's, there's quite a few that spring to mind, um, depending on, on what sort of area we were exploring at the time. I've really enjoyed some of the books from What If, like Sticky Wisdom, to help us with creativity and a repeatable process. Um, but I guess given my current role, the, the books that have had the most impact are the mounds of literature out there about innovation and how you do that in big incumbent organisations. Uh, things like Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Solution, which teaches you how to uh, 
uh, think about disruptive versus sustaining innovation. But if I were to pick one out of that pile, it would probably be the other side of innovation. Right. Which is by a chap called uh, Govindarajan and Trimble, two chaps actually. And it's partly down to timing because this happened to be the first book I read about systematic innovation. But what I took from it is how they describe the way of formalizing uh, a creation of data-driven testable hypotheses in an innovation process. And I found it just full of practical examples and really quite an easy read. Uh, most business books have sort of 10% good content and 90% padding around the outside. I think this had a much higher percentage of content in it. And before we sign off, Jonathan, tell everyone how they can connect with you, whether it's on Twitter, LinkedIn, or your website, or, or just email. How can people get in touch? Uh, well, the best place is, is LinkedIn. You, you can find me on there if you search for Jonathan Hughes, or, or of course, you can go to linkedin.com slash in slash Jonathan Hughes FIA. Uh, and I'm always happy to hear from new people, uh, particularly if they've got new views to share. Uh, so please do get in touch with me. And as always, I'll share those contact details on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MPAF. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast this morning. Lots of food for thought, lots of really interesting ideas. The idea of the persuasive digital advisor is is really exciting. Let me wish you every success for the future, and I hope to catch up with you again soon. Thank you very much, Roger. listening to the marketing protection and finance podcast do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash mpaf for links to the apps and topics and books we discussed if you enjoyed the show please leave a review on itunes simply visit rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash itunes and leave a review if you are a provider or advisor or journalist and you have a product, campaign or business model you'd like to talk about, please get in touch. You could be the next guest on the show. And do remember, nothing we talk about on the show is financial advice of any kind. It's all just thoughts and opinions, okay? Okay.